The point is that we are all capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And then, when we are finally proven wrong, impudently twisting the facts so as to show that we were right. Intellectually, it is possible to carry on this process for an indefinite time. The only check on it is that sooner or later a false belief bumps up against solid reality, usually on a battlefield. George Orwell. Welcome back to Centering the Margins, the companion podcast to the book, How to Teach Contentious Issues in the Classroom by Francisco Ramos, available for $4.99 on Apple Books. As always, I'm Michael Bedsecond, and I'm joined by the author himself, Cisco Ramos, and we are always glad you came back. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. Be sure to check out our previous episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast service you prefer. This week, we talk about how to evaluate online information and how to sustainably do that in the classroom. I am so looking forward to today's conversation. It's good to see you, and welcome back. Hey, Cisco, how you doing today, man? I'm doing well, Michael. How you holding up? I cannot complain, cannot complain. There's a, it feels, you know, as though the air is a little bit different. Um, I think that this week's conversation feels exceedingly salient, uh, especially given that the inauguration is this week. Um, and, uh, you know, when we have a conversation about evaluating online information, you know, we have lived in a time where, the the ability to decipher what is real and what is not is, is almost uh something that you need to have as a secondhand nature like yeah. you need to know it you know easily and quickly and so you know i i find i find that you know it, there, there's no better way to root a conversation like this than in the here and now <laughs> yeah yeah i i understand that and i and i and i get that completely you know one of the things i before I started writing this specific chapter, um, or even really beginning to to put notes forward for this chapter, this was several years ago, I kept looking around and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what is, you know, not necessarily the superficial things going on um, with, you know, whether it's uh, a particular platform such as a, a Facebook or a Twitter, but really for educators, what is it about the advent and implementation of these technologies on one hand, as well as, you know, the foundational things that we try to teach in education on the other. Um, right. Because I, I kept thinking like, man, there's got to be something in that tension right there that I think is really fascinating and can illuminate more um, than my attempts to try to go go around platform to platform to platform, which right, right, you know right. that you know who cares about that to be honest. Um, so this entire chapter in the guidebook is about an inverse relationship that um, I would argue educators must be aware of and grapple with. And it's really the more that we know about, implement, and utilize advanced media's such as social media's and technologies the stronger our mm. grasp must be on foundational and critical literacies. So right. just because we have all of these really advanced things that can make us do really cool stuff, 
how strong is our grasp on the foundational literacies that make learning possible? I feel like that almost was birthed in a space of, of uh, aside from you being a researcher, but a, a space of personal, you know, practice or something. Is there a story that kind of lives inside of you that you experience some semblance of like, oh, I thought this was real and then it wasn't? I don't know if it was um, something that real, if something was real or wasn't for me. Um, I approach a lot of these different conversations. Really, I start from personal experience and then work my way out to something that may or may not be more generalizable. Um, so one of the, the word that sticks in my mind right now is um, in Spanish, it's called chisme. In English, it's gossip. Um, and there's something about gossip or there's something about chisme where I always say like, even in gossip, there's a kernel of truth, right? Exactly. Yep. There's a kernel of something. And whenever you're talking to people, you know, it's really hard to sift through uh, the degrees of objectivity or subjectivity that are floating around the elaborations right. and the embellishments that people are putting forward. Right. Um, and this is something, again, um, you know, chisme, I think for a lot of... Um, Mexican folks, a lot of brown folks. It's just something you grow up in. We love gossip, right? It's it's great. <laughs> it can be funny. It can be serious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an entire telenovela industry and complex in Latin America that is largely hinges, the, well, the stories hinge on chisme. Um, hmm. But then it's looking around one day and it's noticing uh, what's being talked about on social media. Right. Um, right. really looking around and being like, you know, I, I, sure. That's, that's a trending story. Uh, is it, is it even true? What, what is it right. based on? Um, right. can, can we link it to a particular source or is it something that I think is, um, you know, that we always hear on and see on TV, a series of phrases where something effective CNN is learning that, you know, mm -hmm. learning, learn, learning, well, that, that can mean anything from where, right? Right, right, right. Uh, or it's being reported that, and it, it's like, by whom? Like, I, I don't know um, where the root or anchor, the kernel right. uh, of that truth is coming from. And so that way, it wasn't necessarily me saying like, something that started out um, to be false, and which I later learned was true. It was just seeing this relationship of, okay, in this context that I grew up in, I'm seeing it adapted and in an entirely different space, even though the same, you know, right. tools that I would use to try to sift through what was true and what's not can absolutely be applied in this setting. I know in Durham, um, a very real example that I can think of, and I, I want to say it was uh, two or three years ago, maybe, maybe longer. Um, I remember it, and I believe it was in the springtime, it was rumored that there was going to be a KKK march in downtown Durham. I do remember that. I do and, remember that. And, and, that and was, it was right after uh, Charlottesville. Yeah. And, and there was rumored that, and again, rumor, geez, man, rumored that people were going to, to be armed, right? There were going to be armed protesters, yada, yada, yada. So right. I remember being at work and then a lot of people, if not the vast majority of campus, was told to go home. Yep. 
Then it turns out that, I don't, I don't know, sometime in the afternoon. So I think we left, we were told to go home in the morning, 10, 11 o'clock, something like that. Um, I think the rally was supposed to be at like one or two. Yeah. I, I just remember like, oh, I can go get lunch, right? Like it's one of these passing thoughts, for, you know, that you have. So maybe, yeah, maybe it was late morning, lunch, somewhere around there. Um, and then while this is going on, people are leaving campus uh, somebody in the city, I, I don't know if it was city hall, but city officials were saying it's not true. Like don't come to downtown Durham. And then sure enough, um, there were, I'm not, I don't, I don't think a protest actually took place An imagined protest might've taken place, but certainly a counter protest to the imagined protest took place because people showed up. And they said they you you know what I mean? And it and it was like people were holding signs saying, you know, we don't want the KKK in town. Um, but it still, you know, where was the actual protest, not the imagined protest? Um and that happened within the span of a day, I believe. Um and so you had rumors circulating all over the place in the morning, we're told to go home. By the evening, we find out that. Um, that a protest that protest was born out of rumor and imagination, yep. and the counter protest absolutely happened. Yep. Uh, I mean, I remember being in my grandmother's kitchen. Actually, uh, I mean, I was supposed to be at school that day, and uh, she was like, "You're not going to school, are you?" And I was like, uh, "I think I nope, nope, I'm not going." And I remember, I remember all of those things. So it's it's interesting that you would bring that uh, that example up. Um, so, so I would imagine when you're in a classroom setting, you know, a rumor of something of that magnitude can grow to something of that magnitude as quickly as it did, and it impacted a city. Mm. And I would imagine that you know, in a classroom setting, there are, I guess, you know, there's there's far less. Uh, you, I guess you could say there would be theoretically far less impact of that gossip that she's made, you know, disrupting class. But how do you decipher what is real and what is not? How do you mm-hmm. navigate, you know, a bias of some nature that a student may bring to the space? So there, there's several things that you mentioned that I think are worth um I try not to say the word unpacking because academics love the word. We need to unpack this. And I'm like, this isn't a suitcase, right? <laughs> Just, I, thank you. Thank you. Thank, sorry. Um, you know, but, but one, sorry, I just, I hear that a lot. Like we need to unpack. I'm just like, come on, man. Like, yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I always try to foreground before I talk about things like external verification, defining terms, you know, things that we we always talk about right, right. In, in, in this space. You know, one of the things that makes gossip, which makes new technologies and media, um, uh, a new variable in the classroom, shall I say, is it, they very much appeal to our emotions as creatures. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a tendency whenever we're in the classroom or wherever we're walking around, we can, we like to emphasize, you know, oh, I'm a scientific person or I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a religious person. Oh, I'm a, right. you know, insert identity claim, what have you in that space. Right. But we're also emotional. And this is something where, 
you know, there's a long, long, long line of research. Um, and because we're in a, a particular political environment that we're in, you know, these are the kinds of questions political scientists have been grappling with literally since like the 1930s and 1940s right. around what right. is it around propaganda that appeals to our base emotions that um, animates us or catalyzes us to act in a certain way. So that's yes. the part of it, again, is just to fully acknowledge that, yeah, we, we are emotional creatures. Um, they are part of who we are. They influence subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways in terms of how we act. Um, so it's really owning that first and foremost. Um, so right. I think having that and going into a setting helps. Um, so there, and there, there's a couple of methodological things that I like to, I like to do, as I mentioned, you know, some of them are around, you know, we can define key terms, but I think beyond defining key terms, it's breaking down, um, what these terms mean for students. So for example, I know in the, in the book, I, I mentioned, you know, two definitions here and I can expand upon these two definitions. Um, you know, the first one, as we, we mentioned, um, uh, early in our conversations is the word, uh, bias. So yep. we talked about implicit bias, uh, several weeks back here, it's just straight bias, just bias. Um, well, we could actually apply straight bias to <laughs> last week's conversation, but <laughs> yes, we yes. absolutely could. But here in this context and for this week, bias indicates the degree of objectivity of an author organization or source. Um, and the second one, which again, I approach this entire guidebook from the perspective of a method, uh, methodologist. So external verification is the cross checking of key facts, statistics, or claims of information against other trusted, uh, information sources. So right. it's my way of saying, can we look at something and all agree that, you know, this glass, this cup is actually made out of glass that yes, there's water in this glass. Well, who says it's glass? Well, it's really the company that makes it. How do right. they know it's glass, right? So it's asking these nuts and bolts questions about can we look at facts, statistics, and the claims that people make on the information that they have? And right. can we compare and all come to the same conclusion that yeah, that's, you know, capital T true, right? Which, I mean, it has to be based on, and you mentioned it earlier, capital F facts. Like we have to decipher what we deem a fact uh, versus fiction. Yeah. Um, no, you, you, I'm, 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 you know, motivated by, you know, the use of things. I know technologies have been, you know, given us such, uh, such wide reaching range. They've, you know, they've advanced us in ways that we had never intended. So I think of something like, you know, the internet, for example, um, uh, we, we are able to look things up pretty quickly now, mm -hmm. excuse me. And, you know, there is a proclivity to believe that, uh, that crowdsourced information tends to be more accurate. Mm -hmm. That is a, you know what I mean? Um, that's a, that's a, that's a big assumption, but yeah, it, it is, it is, it's a huge assumption, but there is this feeling. So like, uh, for example, not to call out any technology companies for, providing misinformation but just the opportunity for people to believe well if it's on wikipedia it must be yeah. right yeah um 
and, and you know, and I appreciate the fact that a Wikipedia requires you to cite sources to link to those cited sources. Yeah. Uh, and it, it requires you to back up specified claims. And they do a really good job of waiting out and weeding out that which is pretty much markedly false. Yeah. Um, or at least getting to it pretty quickly. Uh, I had a friend of mine, it's just to this point, you know, we've gotten to a place where we, you know, we will look at Siri or, or Google or whomever and say, you know, tell me X thing. X mm -hmm. things should that should be provable by, you know, yeah. a quick Google search. And, you know, that information will come up. Well, I had a buddy of mine last week who wanted to know the age of Christopher Nolan. Huh. And so he talked to his device and his device came back and said that Christopher Nolan was uh, 16. Yeah. <laughs> was he born on a leap year? And if so, um... <laughs> the answer is no. Even if that's the case, he wouldn't be 16. That would yeah. make him what? Uh, uh, 40. I can uh, do math. 16, 32, 64. There we are. Yeah, 64. I was like, why can I not do this right now? We have, we have decided by or we figured out, by the way, for all of our listeners, math in Cisco and myself are not friends. <laughs> yeah well, well you know what you know what it is though like okay so let me take it back we happen to either record in the morning or evening so either i haven't had coffee or my brain is fried right so that's that's my excuse what's yours you know uh, i i don't really have one i normally so <laughs> i normally do a better job with mental math but yeah uh, i think it may be the pressure you know it's the whole like spelling bee thing Oh, um, man. Anyway, spelling in front of people is the worst, man. It's for the right, birds, right? For the birds. <laughs> anyway, to get back onto where yeah, we were. Yeah. Um, so, no. So he he asks and it comes back and says he's 16 and he goes and looks mm. and someone has changed Christopher Nolan's age in Wikipedia that it's pulling from. And mm. so the thing that we expected and he actually he commented about it. He's like, I'm flabbergasted. Rarely is you know his device wrong rarely is google wrong effectively is the claim that he was making mm. and I, I was you know I, I stopped for a second and i was like yeah it is rarely wrong but that should prove to you that you can't believe everything that you see there immediately yeah, yeah. and so when we talk about cross cross-checking facts and stuff of that nature like something as simple as this man being born i think he's born in like 70 or 71 mm. so like that makes more sense to me you know what i mean like mm -hmm. yeah and, and i hear that and I, you know and, and one of the things that i try to remember and you know the and i think it was stephen colbert this whole idea of truthiness yes i, I don't know if it's true but it sounds right yep 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 that that part of it again, like I don't know if insert whatever it is that I'm, <laughs> but you think about that, like that basic approach, truthiness appeals to our feelings, yep, appeals to our emotions, appeals to our judgments, it appeals to our tastes. It sometimes appeals... it appeals to the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. The immediacy of whatever it is that we're going through right now in that moment in that space. Um, and something truthy uh, has a way of becoming capital T truth. truth. Um, right. So this whole idea of can we cross check? Can we find some way of going to multiple sources, confirming with other people? And I will say one of the interesting things about platforms such as 
Um, I could start with Wikipedia and already said their name, so it's out in the world. But no, but we think we think about how knowledge is constructed, right? How truth is yeah. constructed, and we said we come. The, the, one of the terms that I really, really like, which can be a double-edged sword sometimes, is the word consensus, right? Mm-hmm. And so we talk mm-hmm. about okay, who is involved at arriving to some kind of consensus to say that yeah, Christopher Nolan is really sixteen? How many? Right. How many right. people are in the room? How many people actually said? You know, okay, what is 2021 minus 1970 is 16. Right, right. Or the joke that's been going around pretty prominently over the last 48 hours. Uh, somebody said, did you just to think people who are born in 2000 are 40 this year? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a commentary on the amount of life that we've lived in the last really 20 to 40, four, four to 20 years, depending on which <laughs> which window you want to so get old. into. Oh. Right, right, right. <laughs> just exactly. Just but but to your point, though, you know, the truthiness of that statement could even easily move into this capital T. Yeah. And there are folks who are like, how do you how do you do math and get 20 minus 2020 and get you know how do you end up with 40 like people were yeah pulling it apart well yeah yeah man because you think about it right like even something the truthiness if you get to the point where you know to get back to this guidebook if we get to a point where we perceive online information as being true unverified not validated we can't pin down a source nuts and bolts kind of thing that directly implicates two words that I think are at the core of a lot of of what we're talking about, which is knowledge and power, right? Are the two two big words that are front and center in my mind. Um, There is a saying, uh, you know, I I don't know if it was reading rainbow. It certainly was a PBS situation. Um, You know, know, knowledge is power, right? And I remember taking a class in college – and the professor stands up one day and says, how many people have heard the phrase, knowledge is power? Um, of course, you know, people raise their hand and profs like, you know what? No, no, no. You've got it wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not knowledge is power. Power is knowledge. knowledge. Right. It's the opposite way around. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the part of it again. Like, you know, if we don't have a sense of what's true, what's truthy, not validated then it becomes very easy to for other variables to enter the picture this is where you know we've talked about in the past uh ignorance right um structured ignorance which is two separate things right uh, what we don't know because we don't know and what we're taught because we it doesn't happen to appear in you know like formal education for example right um and all of these other um dynamics that eat away at um, our ability to not only evaluate online information, to let people come to their conclusion through methods about what is true, what is not. And I think just as importantly, and we're seeing it now, and we've brought up several examples today, about how it influences and affects their own lives. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So and, and I, I promise I'll stop giving pop cultural examples, but I couldn't no, help but as you were think as you were talking, think back to the late 2012, early 2013 uh, advertisement called State of Disbelief that State Farm put out 
and um, it's a guy. I think it's either a guy or the the insurance agent is standing next to a friend of his or like his insuree, one or the other. I can't remember. Um, and uh, she's about to go on a date, and uh, she's like. <laughs> She's like, uh, she looks at the guy she's talking to and she's like, hey, here's my date. And then the guy's like, ah, uh, that guy's a little interesting. He's like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a French model. And uh, she's like, she basically goes, well, they can't put anything on the Internet that's not true. So and like mm -hmm. then they walk off. And I think it was this larger company trying to start to combat some of the statements that have been made against them in a very mm -hmm. you know tongue in cheek what kind of way. but you know, ultimately seeing that, that statement kind of put me in a place where I started to, and this is in 2012, where I started to realize yeah. just how easily people are taken by even just general news organizations. And I know one of the mm -hmm. things in class that, and also in the guidebook that you kind of talk about is the journalistic quality and partisan bias that we have, you know, towards specific news outlets. Um, and you have a very you have a very particular set of news outlets that you choose to engage for very specific reasons yourself. Yeah, so that's um first of all before I talk more about the chart, um it was originally developed by Vanessa Ortero in 2016, so I just want to make sure I mm -hmm. give credit where credit is due. Um but one of the things and one of the approaches that I take is in this kind of conversation just asking students if you had to ascribe meaning or values to a news organization, right? This right. question of, of truthiness, if you will. Um, where would you put uh, in a particular organization on this chart? Now, for those, obviously, you can't see a podcast. So, you know, give me two seconds to describe the... Um, the chart itself. Yeah, the chart itself. Thank you. Uh, words. So on the... <laughs> On the x-axis, you know, we have a continuum between liberal and conservative. So the further left you go is the more liberal and you perceive an outlet to be in them. And the further right you go, the more conservative you perceive an outlet to be. Um, and then on the y-axis, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Um, the further down you go on the chart is the more um, sensational or clickbait, i.e., Super, super basic, um, straightforward, no room for ambiguity, very little room for interpretation kind of information. And the further higher you go on the y-axis is the more complex, the more analytical, and the more nuanced that um, you perceive uh, an outlet to have. Now, the reason why I, I, I really like this approach, um, one, in a group setting, it's a very easy way of letting students discuss several things and learning, I think, collectively several things. On one hand, it's giving them the opportunity to collectively come to some kind of understanding about their perceptions, right? right. We all walk into the classroom with a level of truthiness that's associated with where we get our information. So in this case, it's saying like, okay, given that truthiness is a is our our precondition just for being a human being, if you had to pin it to a news site, what would you consider to be liberal, conservative, something in the middle? Um, where would you put it on the y-axis, for example, from would it be super, super basic? Or is this something that is a bit more analytical and requiring 
a bit more work on your end, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, starting absolutely with that assignment. And the second one is by using a chart, again, it's a very simple and easy thing that you can do, but I think it mediates a way for students to have this kind of conversation so that it's not so much, oh, you think they're over there? Well, I think they're over there. You know, it avoids the IU dynamics uh, when it comes to language. It mediates engagement in such a way that we are focused on something that we're collectively trying to work through together. Right. Well, and and even in that point, like in, I mean, we've kind of modeled some of the things that we've just, you know, talked about to get to this point in the conversation. You know, there, you talk about this in the guidebook, there are a lot of pathways to news not just social media. And I think that one of the things that, especially when you have digital natives, like we in this particular day and age, the folks that are coming through schools on average, I mean, not consistently because you have older, um, older students from time to time, but on average, these are folks that grew up with access to DSL, with Mm. access to the first gen iPods, iPads, you know, they had mobile tech, they had, you know, they had supercomputers in their pockets in a way that you or I did not. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I think that there is a proclivity to believe that there are very specific ways that you get your news rather than remembering that there are a lot of other ways to do it aside from social media. Um, how do you tease that out in a classroom so that students can kind of come to those conclusions? Yeah. So, so there's several, there's several, there's several ways. And first, if I take a step back, you know, this is partly where, um, you know, I know a lot of folks like to have very uh, passionate opinions about news outlets, right. ethics. Um, I'm going to completely sidestep those because I think a lot of those conversations are, are unproductive. What I can say, I and I and what I do emphasize to students is, you know, what are the criteria that we use in analyzing this kind of information, given that in many ways, knowledge is more democratized for better, or for worse. There are arguments on a lot of different sides on that one. And given that, you know, frankly, and I think like you, Michael, and I think like a lot of people listening, I was born and my, some of my most formative moments happened pre-internet. So yeah. Yeah. You know, we we joked around like, did you have dial up? You hope people don't call. Right, um, right. Where to... does this big spider live that's on the web? Like, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out where this web is. <laughs> yeah, and I, I remember like cell phones were blocks, like truly yeah. like this big blocky thing that would not fit in your pocket too. And it would um, hurt. And you, yeah, you couldn't man. break it. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't break it. Like, you know. And it held a charge for a week and a half off of one charge. <laughs> yeah. You know what's funny? Total side note. Um, I shout out to Nokia because when I was doing field work, like um, this must have been like 2009, 2010. I literally had one of these. I'm sure right now people would think are burner phones, but at the time it was very, very practical. (laughs) But literally that thing held a charge for two or three weeks. So thank you, Nokia. Yeah. Like, and it cost like 10 bucks. Anyways. Uh, this wasn't touchscreen. This was like a really crappy worm game that you, it came with oh, one yeah. game and oh, yeah. like 12 numbers. That was it. 
Yeah, um, and you had to in the text you had to hit the same number multiple times to get to the letter, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but it was better than the rotary dial. And then you get oh, yeah. angry that people have the nine or the zero. And if and if you're too young and don't know what we're talking about, go look it up. But if people had <laughs> my number is nine one five, and you're like, come on, man, why am I really Boom. come on? <laughs> there, there's there's two outlets that I absolutely appreciate. Um you know, and having these kind of conversations with students, because oftentimes, you know, it's very easy to whenever we're doing, um, we're having these kind of discussions, not to be able to see ourselves in a much bigger picture. Right. So right. I think there's two outlets that do a wonderful job. In, and I will say just as a, another plug for the guidebook, one of the great benefits of the guidebook and the reason why it's an ebook, and I've received a lot of mm-hmm. um positive feedback and i've asked some questions like hey is there a paperback version of the book which i'm working on to translate because the ebook the great strength that it has is that you as a user have the ability to click on a link and it will take you to yep. the actual research the organizations um and any or other the resource kind of- that you refer to using Oh, so Project Information Literacy, as well as the Stanford History Education Group. Um, those are the two big ones a, a, in this context. In each and other chapters, a lot of other things are, are linked, but it's for that reason. So you can actually go and check it out for yourself. So Project Information Literacy um, conducted a, what I think is a fairly incredible study around um, news consumption and college students. And some of their findings, I think, just emphasize the importance mm-hmm. of developing critical literacies in and out of the classroom. Right. So when, Michael, when you took the course, this was important to me because it wasn't just around um, the relationship that college students have with social media and news consumption, but it was, can we see ourselves in this much bigger picture? Right. So project information, wonderful job. Some of their, some of their findings. Um, So there's many pathways to news, not only social media. So today's young consumers are what they consider multimodal. That is 67% of the survey respondents receive news from five pathways to news during the preceding week. Mm -hmm. The most common were from their peers. So 93% of uh, college students received information from their peers. 70% got news from discussions with professors. Mm -hmm. Social media, 89%. Yep. Online newspapers, 76, and news feeds, 55. Right. So, so Michael, in taking my class, I've always said some variation of, you know, you are going to learn more from your peers than you'll ever learn from me. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely meant that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like I can, I, I as a professor can go up here and lay out frameworks and yada, yada, yada. Peers um, are more important um, in many ways than the teacher, than the professor. Right. Um, and we, yeah, we just, we just, we know this from the, from the research and I, and I would argue, um, from experience. Which is even further to the point of why it's important to conduct the classroom in a way where you're able to translate information to the peer group. You know, if, if certain persons get it, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, it went even deeper into whatever we were talking about online or wherever I was reading another mm-hmm. book. Or, and then they will start to share out to things that will further saturate the peer group. 
rather mm -hmm. than hearing it come from, you know, the sage on the stage at the front of the classroom. Yeah. And, and I think in, in that particular context, uh, sage on the stage, I'm stealing that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not originally mine. Uh, the person oh, okay. I need the credit okay. to is Dr. Miguel Lacerna. I'm sure it, belong, it belongs to other people, but go for it. <laughs> yeah. But, but it becomes this thing like, you know, one of the things we in in online discussions with online information, we always talk about information silos, right? Mm -hmm. This is exactly I, I view my role as um, a professor in this context, can I ask questions that challenge students' views on X? Exactly. You know, how do you know that that's accurate? Right. Tell me why. Right. What's your source for that? Right. A series of very simple um, questions that force and encourage people to take whatever claim they're, they're putting out there in the world and say like, okay, Break this down for me. Right. Why, how, where, when, etc. cetera. Um, the, another insight, um, uh, I'm just going to read here. Uh, news knows no personal boundaries, so yep. students follow selectively. So they found that more than two-thirds of the respondents said that the sheer amount of news was overwhelming. Now, keep in mind, this is college students, primarily digital natives. Exactly. Half agreed that it was difficult to tell the most important news stories on a given day. That's 51%. News digests, such as Skim and BuzzFeed's top five, were mentioned by interviewees as being essential for keeping up. Many mm. students were judicious news seekers, only engaging with news topics that, quote, directly affect me, such as traffic and weather, hovering around 90%. Or national politics at eighty nine percent, right? So, so this to me as an educator was surprising, I think, to read because I, I'm not on Facebook. But you know, back in the day when I when I would log in, you you usually see something to the equivalent of like, here's your top five or ten news articles of the day, right? Right. Um, that. Yep. I got no words for that, but that plays yep. an important role about where, um, where people get their information. Right. Well, and then we have to ask the question where the bias of the source lies. Why is that, mm -hmm. you know, why is that the top five? And there's been a, a large conversation. Cheryl, Cheryl, I was just on uh PBS news. Oh, Hour. she, Cheryl is fabulous by the way. Exactly. Big shout out to Cheryl. Exactly. She oh. was just on the other day, actually having this conversation directing, you know, um, uh, uh, an intense look at why we hyper-focus, for example, on, you know, white working class families right now as the people who need to have this in-depth about what's going on and what makes them tick as the focus of journalism. Mm -hmm. And she goes, you know, yeah. there's a lot of black and brown communities that have been saying things that are super important relative to who's being left out of policy making. But yeah. because we chose to hyper-focus in this one area, we've completely negated and neglected a whole section of the, a section of the, the electorate. And she goes on to have a, mm -hmm. a, a much more, you know, uh, in-depth conversation surrounding that. But to the point of like, if I'm going to take these top five news articles, there's going to potentially be the opportunity, especially if I'm only getting it from, you know, two or three sources and they're all kind of in the same sphere, there's going mm -hmm. to be a hyper-focusing on a very particular subset of people in those needs. And so yeah. certain other folks, you know, it's easy for you to be like, well, I didn't know about that because you never 
you know, you never stepped outside of, of the, the realm of the, you know, the bias of those groups in those circles. Yeah. And, and what, there, there's two points. One of them just to build a little bit upon a little bit upon what you said. Um, I think one of the, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny to say out loud, um, you know, there was a special runoff election in Georgia and people were surprised that there are black and brown folks living in rural Georgia. Yep. And what, what made me laugh is, um, one of my best friends, uh, you know, met in graduate school. He's now an associate professor at UCLA. He's brilliant. Came out with a book um, called "The Campus Color Line." Um, I won't give his name, but you can go look his look up his book. It's at Princeton University Press. Brilliant, brilliant friend of mine um, from the Black Belt in Alabama. And this whole idea of how being "quote unquote" rural meant being white. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And yes, I have so that's many the, comments that, about this. <laughs> that That's the part of it again, where, um, you know, I think that's uh, where that assumption came in or how it entered discourse and gets lodged into people's brains only to find out with actual data and numbers after a major national election. Oh yeah. There are black and brown folks living in the, in quote, I'm, I'm using rural in quotation marks because that can mean different things to different people, yep. but there, you know, there are, black and brown folks living in rural areas. The second thing, when it comes to social media, and this is a, a broader concern that I have as an educator, is that the motivations and interests of a social media and a technology company are gonna be exactly. very, very different. Exactly. The whole point about the top five um, is to get you to click. Yep. That's how they make money. Yep. Um, there are people who wordsmith uh, headlines to get you to click. And a lot of it is algorithm based. Um, and what's interesting, and this is something that it's easy to say out loud, but it's hard to keep track of in the moment. And I think this is why there we're starting to see concerted pushes against, uh, technology companies, um, is that we have no idea what the long-term effects on people are in our relationship with social media. We have no idea. Exactly. Exactly. We just know that we're manipulated in certain ways to click and to follow and to read um, and to keep us scrolling. Right. Which that's the point. To the point that, you know, there are plenty of tech companies who uh, the financial officers, CEOs, whatever, they send their children, for example, to tech free communities like schools and mm. stuff like that, because they yeah. know they know what they're building and the, the product that they're trying to get folks to consume. And so they realize that they don't want that for their children. They're like, I don't want you getting caught in that snap and in, in that snare. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, and, and to take it even further, I think I, I would put it in such a way as saying, or rephrase what you say is, you know, pretend I'm a, I'm a dad for a minute. I know you're going to be one in the not too. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you were you. awesome. Thank you. Um, well done. <laughs> I haven't done anything. I mean, yeah, I did something, but you know, yeah, you know, I'm not the one uh, making the child. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll be up at, you know, just don't text me at two in the morning. I am not awake. How about two fifteen? <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, you know, but another, a, a way to rephrase what you just said. And I think with, what we're learning is that I don't want you to be the product. 
Exactly. Yes. Say that again, please. I do not want you to be the product. Can you explain what that means, Cisco? I, you know, it's, so we live in a very consumption-based society, right? Big picture-wise, we consume, um, we base a lot of assumptions about the economy on the basic idea that we're growing at X percent a year. Right. I remember in econ, it was 3%. Maybe that number's changed. Inflation is pegged at that. Um, that assumption, I last I checked, was 3%. Some people are saying it might be a little bit more now. Um, but this whole idea of how society is divvied up. Um, when I was in graduate school, it was, um, in a lot of my research, it was thinking about mental and manual labor, are you using your mind or are you using your hands as a way to understand why in my research, um, certain uh, divisions may or may not have existed, right? Trying to find an explanation for for what I was seeing. Um, with social media, with a lot of technologies, um, if something is free, you are... Um, and you know, I know we're going to get at this at, at another chapter, so I'm trying not to give away a future episode. <laughs> but you, can tease you know, it if you'd like, what's that? You can tease it if you'd like. Well, <laughs> for your viewing pleasure for next week. Now, um, viewing pleasure on a podcast. Thank you, Cisco. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, but but really, is if something is free, you are either the product. You are pay literally um, paying attention. Your attention is getting someone else paid. Um, and what kind of product are you receiving? Is it, it because I would argue it, it's not just news or confirming a worldview that you already have, a worldview and articles that are fed to you by algorithms. Um, you're given grief. Mm-hmm anxiety mm -hmm. you are and as we're learning um with facebook for example uh these your suggested friends are people that are already in a bubble mm -hmm. so it's not like you can oh i'm gonna go make friends with different people according to you know how cool they are how much they make me laugh or or whatever mm -hmm. um you know, and it turns out that a lot of hate groups, for example, started that way because algorithms looked at preferences, what you looked at in the past, and they started lumping people together. Um, and in that process, uh, the suggested friends or other people that you might get along with were also people who shared those common interests. Um, and uh, again, because people are infinitely creative, um, Sometimes that's a great thing. Sometimes not so much. Um, a sizable percentage of hate groups actually formed over that. So it's not just me saying like, oh, I'm reading this article, but it's who my friends are. Is it the right. anxiety, right. the grief? Is right. it really sleepless nights? Right. Um, we're in a pandemic now. Is it like higher blood pressure? Is it affecting yep. my health? Yep. You know, so it's not necessarily the visible or the visual it's the invisible things that come with that relationship that I, th I think 
are, are really where the real, the real struggles at, if you will. And I do mean that word struggle, um, deliberately. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I got. I could talk about that for a lot. I, I don't want to, I don't want to hog. Well, no, you're good. You're good. I think that actually circles us back around to the, the whole idea of news knows no personal boundaries. And so students do have a selective following feature. And so mm-hmm. those, those tensions that oftentimes show up in those articles uh, that, that maybe keep you awake. I mean, there's, there's a whole uh, line of research that talks about falling asleep with your um, uh, falling asleep with your cell phone keeps you awake on average i think two hours longer yeah um and i know they hold they did the whole like reduction of blue light feature and all that other stuff but at the end of the day part of the reason that you stay awake is because your brain is still trying to parse things so yeah like when we start getting to the conversations of like idealized views of journalism and a distrust of today's news like i shouldn't be working that out while i'm trying to fall asleep and and that the, the thing that a, no, you shouldn't. And when I mentioned the health effects, because I do remember reading a lot about this, where one of the, one of the, I think the brain is the most interesting and fascinating part of the human body, because we know so very little about it. Um, right, 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 right. Is that at, at night when you're, when you're sleeping, that's when your brain flushes a lot of the toxicities out of your system. Like your, you have to sleep for your mind and your brain to refresh, right. right? To flush all of the plaque and all of the things that build up during the day. So when you don't sleep, a lot of that plaque stays in your brain. Right, right. And it can slowly over time collect and collect and collect and to actually become something that starts um, blocking. Grant, I'm not a, I'm going to say I'm not a neuroscientist. So please wait. You're not no. a neuroscientist. When, no, when, no, this, I, is, I, I, this I, podcast is over. What a fraud! <laughs> this guy giving advice. The wrong doctor, sir. Wrong doctor. Um, you know, but but you know, you you start to have plaque buildup, and that can lead to a litany of things that you really don't want. Um, dementia, right? Who you know? I I don't know about you, but I I don't want dementia. Nope. I don't want those problems like and I don't want my family to experience any of that stuff. My great grandfather, um, he had uh, Alzheimer's Mm. and, you know, thankfully, the man was a farmer and was fit and always working, um, made it, I believe, to to 95 years old. And it wasn't until like the past, you know, the final seven or eight months you know, and I'm like, okay, that, that makes sense to me. But, you know, to start seeing this earlier and earlier and earlier, a lot of these health issues that are percolating, um, wild to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, yeah. So, um, so the third thing I'll, I'll mention real quick is, um, finding from is, uh, is tension exists between idealized views of journalism and a distrust of today's news. So what um, they found is that eight in 10 students agreed that news is necessary in a democracy, but the news, most said, had fallen short of their idealistic standards of accuracy, independence, and fairness. So staying current often meant navigating a complex minefield of misinformation, 
commercial interests, effective pleas for their clicks, fast news from social media, and political manipulation. More than a third, 36%, said fake news had made them distrust the credibility of any news. What's the, what's, uh, I'm going to look it up real fast. I'm trying to remember the stat that talks about the number of students or number of, of like folks under the age of like 35 that get their news from like the daily show, uh, yeah. Colbert, you know, John Oliver, like that subset has become yeah. really high. I mean, it, it's really high. I mean, I think the more interesting question is what is it about comedians that makes comedians more trustworthy than your traditional sources where it's no longer like your uh, Walter Cronkite's of the world right, right. or um, Edward R. Murrow's, um, but a guy who, and I'm not, this isn't a knock by the way, um, but a guy who started his career telling jokes. Um, right. Well, why do we place our trust there? I, I think that there's something to be said. I, I, you know, I've got a buddy who always says, you know, and I'm, I'm going to name famous comedians by name because it it makes the conversation make more sense. Um, yep. But he talks about, you know, if if Chris Rock had become a sociologist, those would be really funny sociological books. <laughs> yeah, because the vast majority of his routines are these deep analytical like broachings. He sees something mm -hmm. and then he turns it on its head and he pulls it apart a little bit. And I think that there's something to be said, one of. To be really funny, like not just like crass or or bombastic or just yeah. loud, yeah. but to be yeah, yeah, yeah. genuinely funny, it is to take something that we either A, find a polite nicety about and don't talk about, or B, uh, don't quite understand from the like human existence feature. And oftentimes mm -hmm. the funny people have had to analyze it in a way to be like, you know, it's really funny that you do X when you really should be doing Y. And we all go, huh, and it makes us laugh. Yeah. Um. So you've, you've got folks like that. But I think there's something to be said of, of, you know, the jokes also. Comedy in general is one of those forms that I think we expect to be pretty brutal. Yeah. In, in clinical almost in its analysis of things. So I think there is a, a, a discussion that says, you know, so, similar to like the documentary form, right? We know that you're yeah. going to tell a truth. Yeah, you might embellish it for the function of it being funny, but you're going to tell a core truth inside yeah. of that thing. And we're all going to know that it's a core truth, but we might not talk about it as a core truth. Yeah. And so I, I think that that's part of the reason why people are more willing to pay their attention that direction, plus to laugh while also experiencing whatever, you, you know, you could say like, yeah, there was an insurrection at the Capitol, make some joke about it. And like, we're all upset at the insurrection, but to laugh allows us to be able to get through yeah. the heaviness of the material you're giving us. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was actually, I was coming at it from a different angle, but maybe we're just coming at the same thing from different directions. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about, you know, this is NBC news with Tom Brokaw. And there's always like, <laughs> you know, this serious new seriousness to it i know john williams the famous composer i think he he put forward uh the music to go with that and it was meant to convey like we're here to be direct and you know yada yada right, yada. right right so there's a whole performance aspect to it and i think of sure. comedians historically you know the one i'm thinking of right now is lenny bruce um yeah. 
Ah, uh, yes. You know, it, where there, there isn't that. Yes, there is a performative aspect to it, but there's not like we are the sole purveyors of importance or trying to communicate um, in that way that a Tom, uh, a Tom Brokaw was really, really trying. Uh, Charlie Rose, um, great interviewer, um, from what we know, got fired for legitimate reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there just wasn't that pretension. It was really about, uh, and, and I know we're deviating way off topic, um, but this whole idea of, for him, free speech and, and where's the line. And I think right. there's a, it connects in a sense of, you know, we mentioned democratizing news and information. I think you could pose that same question where Bruce is asking, where's the line with um, free speech, the public, profanity? Right. I think here you could ask, well, really, in a democratized news environment, where's the line with truth? Where's the line with reality? Where's right. the line with perception? Um, where's the line with consensus? So even begin to build a foundation um, upon which we can all collectively agree on right. something, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Well, and, um, and, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. And, and I think even further, you know, part of, you know, if we're going to continue to tease this thread out, I really am enjoying this. I know we're off topic, but I think there's something to be said of why people come here to get their news to then take it back. Part of it is because the the folks who are telling that subset of news, and this goes back to the necessity for representation to be that which marches forward, but mm. the, a decent number of people who are telling us these factual evidences live in bodies that are more prevalent to the group that's hearing it. You know, mm. when, when Trevor Noah makes a statement about young people, he's technically in the group. Mm-hmm. So he's not just making a statement of an observation that he's seen, but he's making a statement of an observation he's lived. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah. No, and I, and I was going to say, I, I was thinking of the thing I forgot to say earlier, which I think just magically came back to me. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we think about news, we think about who are our sources. I think one of the big players and the invisible force in this conversation is culture. Yes. And and exactly. culture shifted and I you know I'm I think and I'm trying to be careful with my words. I think culture shifted, technology shifted and the ways of doing things or our ways of understanding are very slowly trying to catch up to a train that's going faster and faster and faster. I can agree with that. I mean, I think that train is a locomotive and our understanding is a steam engine. And like those two things, there may be a day where the steam engine can move fast enough, but the amount of coal that you had to burn to get there is insane. I mean, the the thing is, and and I'll say this now, I don't think we'll ever catch up, man, because I I really do Mm. think that the changes we're seeing um, with our consumption, how news is informing what we do or not, or who we associate with or not, health effects, right? wherever those effects are or happen to be on. Um, I think those changes and our ability to incorporate them is moving faster than our ability to make sense of it. Well, and that actually is exactly what I think number four in some way, shape or form shapes up to be the whole students share news on social media as stewards of what's important to know. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll read it real quick just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, so number four, fourth finding, uh, project information literacy. Students share news on social media as stewards of what's important to know. A majority of respondents, 58%, had shared or retweeted news in the preceding week. Many shared political memes, that's at 33%, or stories about national politics at 29%. Women, 70%, shared more news than men, 28%. Um, almost half, 44%, indicated that they shared news to have a voice about a larger cause. So to your statement of culture moving so quickly, so much faster than we're often able to make sense of it, you know, we are kind of, ironically enough, spinning the wheel faster. It's like that uh, that kid's toy or like even the teacups at Disney World where you spin, you're spinning around, but if you choose to spin the wheel inside, you spin even faster and you mm. it, so you don't really have a clue of what direction you're spinning toward you just know you're spinning and and i think in some ways like we all get caught in this web this spun web which goes back to your statement of not becoming the product yeah and and i love and i love um hey i love that you mentioned the teacups at at disneyland because i've been on those teacups <laughs> fun <laughs> not recently mind you yes, but yes. they're fun <laughs> before pain <laughs> two weeks ago you know I, I, I don't know you know i put on some gloves and uh give oh it a my whirl gosh, don't say stuff like that <laughs> you know but it is um stay home people <laughs> <laughs> Uh, please ignore me, okay? I want to now, but it, it, it's a great it's a great uh, visual because you think about you know the inertia. You move yes. that little, I don't know. It's this metallic circular steering wheel thing. You move it faster. You mm -hmm. know, the body goes faster than the head. Exactly, exactly. That is such a great way to think about it. Where it's sort of like we're consuming all this stuff. It influences the body, influences our health, our ability to sleep, eventually our head and the research and what we think and know and our learning eventually catches up, but the damage is already done. Exactly. 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 And you're disoriented. Yeah. And you're very disoriented. And the thing that's, I think the reason that I like that as an example even greater is that when you finally are oriented you're oriented for something that already happened. It's it's kind of mm. like we're jumping into the realm of quantum physics here. So like if you believe in the idea that something that you're doing now is something you will indefinitely always do in that moment in time, um, mm. then effectively you would orient yourself for that moment in time. But that because we live in a linear shape and a linear timeline, we can't ever go backwards. So we're always late to an understanding of where mm -hmm. we're moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that. And, you know, you mentioned the word orient. I was thinking we're being reconditioned and we don't know how. Wow. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. that, that's the, that's the, only, I mean, I can't put it blunter because, um, you know, we're thinking one of my, I will give, um, Cindy a shout out. So of a, a mentor of mine way back in the day, Cindy Cruz, um, uh, Chicana professor over at, um, I believe UC Santa Cruz uh, theorized um, on the brown body, right? One mm -hmm. of her great, great papers was on the brown body. And one of the, when we used to talk, she always said, the body remembers. Yeah. Yeah. The body remembers. So like we have that we're undergoing this reconditioning. We don't make sense of it. Our bodies absolutely remember. Um, and it comes out in weird ways.
Yep. And, or I shouldn't say weird ways we don't expect. Unexpected. Yeah. Unexpected ways. And I think that that's the, the demonstrative um, damage, if you will, because yeah. again, we're responding to stuff and we're not even, I, I I'm all right. I'm about to make a geek culture reference. Um, Do it. So uh, there, there's a whole conversation of phasers for people who are Star Trek fans and blasters for people who are Star Wars. I'm gonna fans. grab some water. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that in both conversations, it is both light energy that is de- like decimating the body, mm. and oftentimes in in older uh, iteratives of the use of either of these things, whether it be lightsabers or whatever, phasers, blasters, yeah. whatever. The person stayed alive long enough to realize that there was something like that they were about to die. Mm. So their their brain was trying to catch up with the decay that their body was experiencing in that moment in time. And Mm. so their body was remembering the damage prior to whatever the thing was, the prior to their death Mm. or prior to them, like having the pain of like their hand being seared off or whatever, like. That's what was occurring. And I think in a lot in a lot of ways, when we talk about the body's ability to remember damage, it is us responding to this point that we've made earlier, late to the damage mm-hmm. that we've had wrought against us without mm-hmm. realizing that we've been damaged. We've been operating yeah. for multiple weeks going forward. And then all of a sudden we realize like something's off. And it's only yeah. then that we realize that, oh, we sustain an energy or excuse me, an, an injury you know, mm-hmm. five weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, I'm just, I'm, I'm so nodding in agreement. I got nothing to add. I just, <laughs> I, I felt every word of that truly. Well, and, and this is to the point of like why it becomes so much more important for us to be even more aggressive on how we evaluate what we allow into our lives, news media wise Mm. Or really in everything, but definitely news media wise. And then how we evaluate what we hand back out. You know, so, you know, after last week's insurrection, my partner has kind of had some semblance of news organization somewhere available in the house for her to get to. Yeah. And she made the comment that she can read transcripts of, you know, things that the insurrectionists said. But to hear it is devastating to her. She cannot listen to it. As a guy who yeah. actively does his entire training is in sound theory and the function of like how sound manipulates the body and disrupts mm. it and what have you. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Because you are actually listening to either the pain that people experience, like whoever was being uh, injured at the time. Yeah. Or you can hear the actual, it goes back to your point of... Uh, uh, from way earlier as far as in we might not have caught it inside of the conversation cisco and i had a pre-roll conversation about how uh energy transmutes into food and Mm. so i I think in some ways you know you're able to hear the energy of whoever that is transmuting across the airwaves into your body you are feeling that thing yeah you are feeling that thing yeah i mean and, and and this is one of the things where um, you know, again, I'm, I'm speaking from experience, not as a trained psychologist or anything like that. You know, one of the basic rules I try to remember, and this is why I, 
I do my best to actively meditate and take a step back and to, the word is curate. Mm. What I let in, what I put out right, is because at the end of the day, I believe that you become what you project. Yeah. And what you project, you have no idea how that's going to affect other people. Yeah. You have no idea. Um. So I, I can absolutely understand that. Absolutely. Because how many times you've been in a room and somebody just gives you bad energy yeah. somehow. Yeah. You know, in, in Spanish, the the mala ojo, the bad eye, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, it's it's that kind of thing where, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't want to hang out with this dude. You know, it just, yeah. it doesn't, Some, it doesn't sit right with me. Right, yeah, yeah, I'm just, yeah. I, I don't want to be here right now, Yeah. right? yeah. Well, and, and to the to the point of how we share police shooting videos, yeah, absolutely, you know, man. That that affects people, yeah. Um, especially when you're does. especially when you're watching somebody that could be you or somebody that you love dearly, or like yeah. that. And, and it, it, then we get into the conversation of desensitized being desensitized to it. There's a whole in the realm of of to your point of of psychiatry and in trauma therapy there's a whole conversation surrounding how we desensitize and disconnect from the emotion of what we're actually watching or consuming and you know it's a different thing to watch it be performed uh in in an action movie or or in a play or in something like that's we know definitively that we've suspended disbelief to see mm. it's completely different when we know definitively that that's an action that occurred and there's yeah. Again, research that supports that I myself am not in that space. I, I've taken some trauma-informed courses on how to do trauma-informed teaching, but you know, other than that, like that's something that really like a lot of the news junket that we're experiencing right now is stuff that should be analyzed by trauma-informed processors prior to us consuming that information because we're just getting hit by it and it's it's damaging us, and we have no idea what that damage is yet. Yeah. No, no, we don't. I mean, that's, that's the scary part. Um, that, that is the scary part. And I think, um, you know, one of the comments I made, and I think it was in the first episode, um, you know, it's one thing to see in the case of the borderlands, um, to see kids in cages mm -hmm. on TV, in print on the New York times, it's another to be in the airport and to see an eight-year-old kid with being escorted in a kids being escorted, plural kids yep. being escorted around an airport with, um, how would you describe it? Uh, by government officials getting on a plane, there have, um, how would you describe it? Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it, no, 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 I mean, it, it's, they have like identifying a plane ticket and a little thing with their name written on it, like hanging around their neck, like a little right. necklace kind of thing that's right. holding the plane ticket, like this plastic thing that you, um, yeah, man, like, you know, it, it's one thing again to, to consume through some kind of mediated platform like the times right with talented reporters or with um 
um, an image that's put together by or taken by a photojournalist who's outstanding at their work. Right. It is another to see something face to face. Exactly. Exactly. It is another. So, I mean, we were talking about all these different things, you know, um, put it away, go for a walk, um, you know, ignore computers on the weekend or something. Right. But that's the part again, where, um, it's understandably hard to do that because we're being reconditioned to rely more and more on devices that instead of us using them, they're using us. Well, and especially in a pandemic, right? Like yeah. in a, in a pandemic that is demonstratively, we know if we're in the same air, breathing the same air, it could be dangerous for either one of us. You know, we have to have that, that field of separation now. And so the only way that we can get to each other and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely be ridiculous. So soldier boy tweeted <laughs> this morning and um, talking about, it was either this morning or late last night. He goes, kiss me through the phone hits different now, doesn't it? <laughs> and it's so true. Like, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways have not gotten a chance to interact with my family. Like really the only persons of my immediate family that I have gotten a chance to see and like hold and interact with on a regular basis for almost a year is the woman that I'm married to. But I have seen, well, that's a lie. My mother-in-law came up, uh, was able to quarantine for two weeks and was able to, to pod together, you know, yeah. but that was, you know, but other than that, like that's, that's the extent of it. And so we are in this reliance on these devices to achieve something that is also artificial. Oh um, Yeah. There's nothing like a hug from my grandmother. There is literally nothing in the world that's like one. And mm -hmm. there is no recreating that. None yeah. at all. So it's nice to hear her voice, see her face, you know, cut up and be ridiculous with her. But that is not being balanced with the ability to just go and literally hold her or get a kiss. And, you know, those that I can't none of that's being put in balance right now. It's very much. You know, we're not even at 80, 80, 20. We're at like a 99.9 .9 to 0.1. Mm -hmm. Like, um, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, like we are very much in a place where our devices are using us. Um, and so it, it, just to circle around and hit this last, this last standard, um, or this last finding from, um, uh, uh, from the project information literacy, um, uh, you talk about traditional standards for, or excuse me, they talk about traditional standards for evaluating news are increasingly problematic. Yeah, this, this one is again, uh, culture shifting and going faster than our ability to keep pace, right? A wide gulf exists between students' news seeking habits for academic versus personal use with most relying on library databases, 66%. For courses and social media at 56% in their personal lives. Criteria taught uh, for assessing academic information were of limited use. I'm going to read this again and very slowly. Criteria taught for assessing academic information were of limited use when applied to newer social media forms where currency and authority are less defined. Mm. 
Okay. So that feels like a little bit of a, a like a a death call. Like you basically just given us like we're well, ringing I, the I, bell. What do we do? I mean, it, it's it's not even ringing the bell. Like I, I think there again when I was putting this chapter together, it's taking a step back and saying like, okay, with the totality of the notes that I have, the research that I've done, all of the readings that um, you know I've thumbed through. I still go back to this dialectic uh, or this inverse relationship that I mentioned, you know, I think first paragraph in this guide, uh, in this particular chapter, the more advanced these medias and technologies become that inform, shape and change our consumption of news, we have to have a stronger and deeper understanding of these foundational um, elements that inform what we perceive to be as a fact, what we, as bias, what we mean by um, interpretation, mm. verification, how we cross-check, like that foundation has to be stronger because the only way that I can see, um, and I would argue, and, and I'm not trying to be a pessimist, I'm very much trying to be a realist in, in, in so many ways because um, there are so many different platforms. There's so many different forms of media that are, are readily, readily available, um, and easy to download and you're on it. Right. Um, is, you know, making sure that as best as one can, that we're teaching critical literacies and that our ability to teach, um, those forms of literacies, um, is, I, I would, I, I would hope, and I argue is um is meaningful to students is mindful of the audience meaning i don't want to take the tone the tom brokaw and i'm picking on tom brokaw he i'm sure he's nice in person that's just the name that's coming to my mind um <laughs> you know approach to a classroom where you know frankly um they were born you know the student was born after the uh, the bush gore election in 2000 Right. Like, like, why would I, why would I take something, um, that can easily be considered, you know, out of date, right. Or not right. relevant. Um, so how do I, you know, upcycle information? How do I upcycle, uh, practices? How do I upcycle? And I think reframe, um, a lot of the really good work that, um, people put in place so that we have a foundation to stand on. How do I, how do I transform all of that really great work um, and adapt it for the age that we're now living in? Well, okay. So that's, that's wonderful. Like how do we frame it in that way? And, and, and I think that the next question is what do we use? What do we tell students to apply? How do we engage that in the classroom? What are things that, what are you, you've got a couple of resources that we should be paying attention to. And I know they're in the guidebook, but can we talk about them a little bit here? Sure. Sure. So there, there's, there's a couple and I can absolutely delve into these in some detail. We'll see where this goes. Um, so in terms of news articles, right. Um, you read something, whether it's on, I don't know, uh, HuffPost, CNN, BBC, uh, Breitbart, whatever, right. You right. read something and you're like, this feels truthy, right? Mm. Is it? Mm -hmm. um, Snopes. Okay. 
go to Snopes, S-N-O-P-E-S, Snopes. Um, their entire, I would say, reason for being is to look at articles that sound truthy and to confirm whether or not they're actually true or the degree to which they are true, right? Right. Um, Snopes is one. Another one we mentioned earlier, Wikipedia. Now, keep in mind, in the classroom environment, I think Wikipedia is fine if we're just looking for general background information. Um, but for actual research or lengthy and in-depth conversations, it might not be appropriate. Um, and I think one that we're, we're seeing right now and is certainly, I think, front and center in our political imagination is a Twitter audit. Mm. Twitter audit is a free resource where if you're ever interested in seeing the percentage of followers uh, that are bots, mm -hmm. they can show you. Right. So again, we're thinking about truthy, getting background information that we hope through Wikipedia has arrived at some kind of consensus by people working through um, bits of information before it's publicly presented and Twitter audit. And so the central point that I always make to students um, is that it's essential that we understand and evaluate our sources of information. Right. And in understanding where our information actually comes from, then it becomes possible to implement practices that promote literacies in and outside of the classroom. Now, granted, I do mean literacies in and outside of the classroom. I know in a in a prior episode, you know, I we we spoke, and I think it was a really great conversation about how one of the challenges of being a teacher is, you know, we we wake up in the morning, have our breakfast, go to work, we teach, and not knowing sort of the influence effect that our presence has in and out of the classroom. And this is where I think, and I would argue that there's certain basic forms of literacy that can help build a solid foundation uh, for students that can then be applied um, outside of the classroom. Now, granted mine, I say that's a hope because the research suggests, as, as we just mentioned that, you know, students, um, let me go back to it. Oh yeah, you know, uh, library databases for courses in social media and their personal lives. You have that dichotomy, but at the same time, um, I think a bridge between the two can absolutely right. um, exist. I think a lot of that bridge will hinge on how we think about um, who has the authority to tell a story, how we think about and implement practices that are sensitive to what we mean by knowledge, how we try to get a better semblance of or a better understanding of truth um, and how we can communicate what those, what this means in real life to our students. I'm glad to hear that we have, you know, Snopes, Wikipedia, and the Twitter audit available to us as three very accessible resources. But mm. what about stuff that we could use in the classroom? What are some you know, super practical resources that can be quickly implemented. Uh, I should say super practical, quickly implemented, and absolutely free. Mm. So the first one, I have to give a massive, massive shout out to a groundbreaking project um, in Europe called the Public Data Lab. Now, the Public Data Lab, a couple of years ago, developed what they call a field guide to fake news and other information disorders. 
And <laughs> it is a guidebook, essentially. It is a really wonderfully put together and practical guidebook that explores the use of digital methods to study false viral news, political memes, trolling practices, and their social life online. And the guidebook just responds to an increasing demand for understanding the interplay between digital platforms, misleading information, propaganda, and viral content practices, and their influence on politics and public life. Now, I, I absolutely love this guidebook. One of the um, I think one of its strengths is not only um, the free resources that it provides, um, but these are very practical things that you can do in your own classroom, in my own setting. Um, one of the things that we look at is how do um, um, news, uh, news in quotation marks and information in quotation marks um, that start out at really uh, unreliable outlets, how do they migrate from unreliable outlets into the mainstream, right. into public discourse? Right. Um, I, I think it's incredible and it's a really nice and easy way to, to work with and to show students that, um, A, that our, that all of our news comes from somewhere, B, it's showing them that, you know, I think, as we mentioned earlier, like, yes, we are emotional, but we can study a lot of what is surrounding us in a way that as best as we can takes emotion out of it so that we can make sense of it. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's a fabulous resource. And even if you are not technologically savvy, um, they have a step-by-step way and they can show you how to actually analyze it yourself. It is fantastic. Can't recommend them highly enough. Public Data Lab. That's awesome. And and if you are not um, in an environment where you can say like, hey, Cisco, I appreciate technology. It's wonderful. My classroom isn't really set up for that. You know, what are, what are some other uh, resources that I might be able to use? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. <laughs> Great question. Um, so I've got three I want to I, I want to give you. One of them is called the crap test. Right now, bear with me. C R A A P, the crap test, and it is employed to check the reliability of sources across academic disciplines. Now, now crap is an acronym, obviously. So the C is currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. And it aims to make it easier for educators and students to determine if their sources can be trusted. So we take a very simple test. Um, it's a, it's like a it's a one page document, and I think you assign a number of, from one to ten on how um, how trustworthy is the currency, the relevance, the authority, the accuracy. And the purpose, now it was originally developed by Sarah Blakesley and her team of librarians at Cal State University in Chico. Um, very easy, a, a document that you can find readily available anywhere online, uh, print it, and by all means, you can use it in your classroom tomorrow. Uh, another great resource, which um, I'm actually kind of surprised because I it is a great resource and I don't think they get enough uh, press for it. The Learning Network from the New York Times. Mm -hmm. They put together a fabulous document analysis questions uh, sheet that requires students to identify the purpose, the message, 
and particularly the audience of a text. So document analysis forms are graphic organizers that guide students through a process of identifying important background information about a document and using this data to determine the text bias or perspective. Now, again, what I love and I appreciate about the document analysis questions um, is the focus on audience. Who is the intended right. audience, right? right? We receive news, we receive bits of information. Who is that information for? Who did the author intend to read, right? Right. So again, some it's absolutely free. You can check it out. The other one, which may surprise a lot of folks, um, again, doing great work. They need some pub. Well, I don't know if they need it or not, but I'm going <laughs> to give it to them anyways. But it's it's from the National Archives out in D.C. They have their own document analysis worksheets um, site, and it offers multiple worksheets that educators can employ to help students make informed judgments about the veracity and validity of their sources. Now, please use these worksheets for photos, written documents, artifacts, posters, maps, cartoons, videos, and sound recordings to teach your students the process of document analysis. And they have resources for all grade levels. So if you happen to be teaching in elementary school, they've got you covered. Hey, Michael, if they're teaching uh, elementary school, what do they have you? Covered. High school? Covered. Thank you. But again, I thought we were going to do college. Really? No, no, no. Whatever. You got to pay, baby. No, I'm just kidding. Um, No, they've got you in college. But again, it's it's one of these areas where um, I, I, again, I am being mindful in this chapter and with these resources on that inverse relationship between we help all of these advanced medias. How do we take a lot of the existing practices and update them in such a way that they can help students as they're navigating um, digital environments. So, Cisco, today was just felt very, very poignant, super on point. What kind of hope do you leave educators right now after basically telling them that the minefield that they're going to send their students out in to be able to make sense of the world is just that, a minefield? What hope do you I, leave them? You know, I think the biggest takeaway that I can provide is that you already have the tools. They already exist in terms of evaluating online information. And it is in terms of literacies, in terms of teaching students, um, how we arrive and evaluate um, truth claims, how we cross-check information, how do we know that what we're reading is actually accurate, Um, who wrote it, what's the audience. These are things and approaches that have been around for a very, very long time. Um, So all of the tools are already there. My big takeaway is they're already there. And, you know, be creative and don't be afraid to be creative with how you implement practices in your own classroom. I don't like getting hit. I'm too pretty. I'm over there. Um, <laughs> I didn't say it that way. I, but I, 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 pretty, though. 
Man, uh, asking for someone to come lay you out. <laughs> nah, man. I, I mean, no, literally. Like, I remember in elementary school, I saw a kid my age break another dude's jaw in the in the schoolyard. Mm-hmm. I don't want those problems. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. No, dude. Like, and, and it just, it, this dude, like, threw a haymaker, it landed, and then you hear a snap. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. Oh, I'm all right. Oh, I, I like me. Oh, I, I like me. My body. Looks <laughs> I do not. Great. Just this. I am. I'm serious, man. If you if you think about getting into a fight, don't call me. I, I'm not gonna help you. Like, not gonna happen. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Centering the Margins. If you liked what you heard, you can rate, review, and subscribe to Centering the Margins on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Be sure to check back next Tuesday for the new episode. In addition, be sure to go pick up Cisco's new easy read, How to Teach Contentious Issues, a practical guidebook for educators on Apple Books. Hey, Cisco, tell us a little bit more about that 30%. Absolutely. 30% of all proceeds will be donated to Durham Children's Initiative. Durham Children's Initiative's mission is to create a pipeline of high-quality services spanning from birth through college and career for children and families living in Durham, North Carolina. There are more than 65 partner organizations and thousands of community members who actively contribute to the initiative. It takes a village, and we at Centering the Margins want to make sure that the village is still here post-COVID. Please go find and buy the guidebook on Apple Books. Your money's going to a great cause. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. I don't think my ancestors really care about, you know, specific ingredients, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So when people say, no, no, if we're we're talking like food and